Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, it's been quite a sort of highbrow week, so buckle up. This is uh, not your usual easy, you know, easy stuff. I uh, didn't even have time for a links I liked because there was so much solid material going on. The first of the week was a repost of a really interesting piece by Alex Evans on his Larger Us blog. He set up this quite interesting organisation called Larger Us. Um, and it's about the interaction between psychology and politics uh, in the case of uh, Russian support for Putin and what's going on in the Ukraine. So let me uh, give you a flavour. Here at Larger Us, we think a lot about them and us dynamics. Dynamics which Putin appears to have had considerable success in stoking with regard to his war in Ukraine. 50 to 60% of the Russian public are in favour of his actions, as far as the analysts can tell, with many Russians refusing to believe accounts of atrocities, even when they come from their own relatives living in Ukraine. Much of this is rooted in how Putin controls Russians' information ecosystem. No independent coverage remains. All TV channels are now parrot Putin's line. Um, but at a deeper level, Putin has excelled at manipulating the psychology of grievance. One core idea is that when a group's identity is threatened after a loss of power, status or prestige, it becomes psychologically essential to re-establish it. If societies don't work through their sense of loss through a process of mourning, it can become central to group identity which in turn makes them vulnerable to manipulation by destructive leaders who play on old wounds. Serbia and Milosevic offer one example. Trump, with his Make America Great Again story of how America used to be great and could be again, another. Putin is a case in point too. For years, he's spun a narrative of humiliation at the hands of the West. As Sam Freeman notes in a recent blog, this was the backdrop to his sudden rapid occupation of Crimea in 2014 when his previously lagging popularity levels suddenly shot up to their highest ever levels amid the first substantive national victory in the lifetime of most Russians. That really got my attention. He continues, Anyone under 50 had lived their whole life through decades of decline, from the failed Soviet invasion of Afghanistan to the fall of the USSR and then the ignominy of the Yeltsin years. Before Putin came to power, they'd struggled to win a war against Chechen rebels. Suddenly, they had reasserted global authority in the face of American protests. It felt to many like the end of the decline. It seems likely that Putin expected another quick victory in this new war in Ukraine that would boost his public standing in the same way as happened in 2014, a catastrophic miscalculation, which has instead left Russia mired in a politically and possibly militarily unwinnable war, with immense costs for Russia in terms of lives, prosperity and global standing. What really scares me, that's Alex Evans, about the current situation is the risk that this dynamic now starts to self-amplify. Russian's sense of humiliation and victimhood seems certain to increase as a result of Putin's disastrous war. It's easy to see how this might lead Putin to double down, for instance, through levelling Ukrainian cities in the way he did in Grozny or Aleppo, or worse. Worse, including nuclear, I imagine. So is there any way of de-escalating this, the sense of loss and grievance felt by ordinary Russians, given the immense harm this has caused in the hands of a manipulative leader like Putin, and the scope for it to do much more as the war drags on? I don't have a neat answer to that question, but I am struck by the extent to which two of the most impressive pieces of storytelling I've seen during the war, a war in which narrative has become crucial, 
have offered some powerful pointers. One is the extraordinary address made by Volodymyr Zelensky on the eve of war, and the other the viral speech made by Arnold Schwarzenegger just last week. Five points stood out for me. First, both speeches were addressed to ordinary Russians. Second, there's a strong emphasis on what we share. Third, both speeches avoid othering. While neither speech shies away from addressing the terrible human cost of war, there's no contempt or shaming that would feed the sense of humiliation and victimhood. Fourth, both speeches are calm, reassuring even. And fifth, and finally, both speeches seek to empower their Russian audience with a sense of agency. And Alex goes into a lot more detail on all five of those with references and all the rest of it. But even if it took a decade to reach peace, it seems clear that the path towards it would run through de-escalating the sense of victimhood and humiliation felt by ordinary Russians. The whole point about them and us stories is that they provide oxygen for authoritarians like Putin. This is why they play down what we share and lead with othering and division, why they trigger people into fight or flight and invite them to hand their agency over to strongmen. I mean, I really like that. And there's you know, lots of references and you know, links and so on in the post. Very good. Then we totally switched topic. So the next two posts were about religion and it's uh, by Kathy Shutt. And the first one was called Tackling Inequality on the Grounds of Religion or Belief. More than add religion and stir. So Cathy was, uh, was contracted by the Coalition of Re uh, on Religious Equality and Inclusion in Development, Creed, nice, um, to conduct research in support of mainstreaming inequality on the grounds of religious belief or non-belief in international development. And that's uh, a, a research program um, run out of the Institute for Development Studies, which is usually a good sign when you see that they're involved. Um, and what Cathy didn't know before was that there are two fairly well-defined camps, and I certainly didn't know this, a bit like in the gender and development world between women in development and gender in development. Here you have faith in development and freedom of religion or belief, FORB. So there's FID and FORB. Faith in development, freedom of religion or, or, or belief. Remember those two acronyms, FID and FORB. And here's, uh, how, how, here's how she explains the differences and why they matter. So faith in development, FID's theory of change, is basically uh, follows the, the, the seminal 1999 Voices of the Poor study commissioned by the World Bank, which is a brilliant study. I do, if you don't know it, look it up, see if you can get hold of it, it's brilliant. They talked to 64,000 poor people in 23 countries and just listened and then tried to find out how poor people see their lives. And this study identified the importance of faith identities as sources of comfort and hope for many people that had long been ignored in international development. Uh, I think she means the faith identities have been ignored, not that the poor people have been ignored. I hope that's what she means. So <clears throat> a review conducted by Creed explores the reasons for the systemic oversight of religion in development. Uh, in short, the modernization theory of change assumed that economic rationality would lead to a post-secular world. So that's right. So, so you know, development is seen as a fundamentally economic issue run by running the interests of rationality and all this weird spiritual stuff, and that that was a sign of the part, you know, old, old thinking that would die away. Well, it's not true. As mounting evidence of the importance of faith identities eroded this confidence, development organisations and academics became more interested in the role of faith and religion in development. <clears throat> 
The philosophical links between most faiths and the practices of aid giving and development are strong. From a more, from a more practical perspective, faith-based faith organisations had long played vital roles as providers of basic services. So many schools, so many hospitals, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, um, are run by faith organisations and faith is a big motivator of activists of all kinds, secular and faith-based. Um, and these, were, these schools and hospitals were particularly important during the Washington Consensus era of structural adjustment and the rolling back of the state. Interesting, a link between faith and, and, um, and neoliberalism there. And of course, faith and faith leaders have been key players in social justice movements. I've certainly seen that. Um, and the example she gives is the Philippines People Power Movement that brought down the Marcos regime in 1986. So this meant that, yeah, I'm going to summarise now because they're two fairly long and dense pieces, but basically that meant that the faith in development uh, crew argued in an instrumental way, really, that um, if you're going to try and help poor people, you have to use religion and faith. Those institutions are providing services. They give you access to poor people. They're trusted by poor people. There's a whole bunch of reasons for taking faith seriously. Um, are they without problems? Of course not, especially yeah, the subject that always comes up on this is gender and gender, women's rights. Um, you know, women's rights proved a sticking point. Many feminists just could not support a, really a faith in development approach and still can't, in my experience. Um, but there are several examples of really interesting attempts to make that work. And she points to Christian Aid's side-by-side -side program um, that tries to, to work with faith leaders in order to shift beliefs and norms that discriminate against women and girls. So I must take a look at that sometime. So that's FID, that's Faith in Development. Now, FORB is a different beast, okay? So while FORB shares aims to make development more inclusive and can engage faith leaders, this is not to capitalise on the power of faith and faith organisations. It aims to address inequalities arising from conscious and unconscious bias on the basis of faith, religion or non-belief. So I'm going to summarise here, and Cathy will probably kill me, but I think what she's saying is that FID is like supporting civil society participation to achieve preset goals like better education. Essentially an instrumentalist view. FORB is more like a human rights agenda, or as she says, the difference between women in development and gender in development. So she goes into this in more detail in the second post, um, and she says, you know, during initial interviews, I found it difficult to pose questions that clearly communicated the similarities and differences between FID and FORB. But one respondent working for a faith organisation put me right. His, re his response highlighted the tensions and dilemmas relating to FORB and the central question of whether it is arguing for freedom of religion or of people. And Cathy concludes that we must focus on people and not beliefs. And this is what she's explaining that in the second post. My informant was a strong supporter of faith in development and enabling those discriminated against on any grounds to access services and enjoy full participation in society. However, he explained that such report, his support would not necessarily go as far as pushing to protect the freedom to practice beliefs and have a religious identity. And this prompted Cathy to reflect on her own position. She says, I find aspects of most faiths, including those I formally identified with, extremely problematic. While I accept most faiths allow great flexibility in how key texts are interpreted, patriarchal institutions that often set out the rules of the game when it comes to practice can undermine what I consider basic human rights. As a result, I would be reluctant 
to proactively advocate for freedom to, for, to practice a religion. However, I found it, yeah, perhaps that's unsurprising given I am an atheist, but I found it more surprising that several informants from faith-based organizations felt the same way. When it comes to discrimination on the grounds of religion, belief or non-belief, like many respondents, I take quite a different position because it's not about freedom of belief, but instead about freedom of people. I would therefore be prepared to take a strong stand against anyone being discriminated against on the grounds of their belief or non-belief. So I had to think about this and read it a couple of times and you're probably just as confused as me, but it's pretty subtle. But what it's saying is freedom from discrimination as a person on the basis of religion is, a, is something that we should support unequivocally, right? Um, freedom to practice a particular religion depends on the religion and the, and the, and the leaders of that religion and what it's saying about freedoms is that right i think so so i think i think kathy's coming down more with fid than forb but you know i say it's quite subtle and uh, i may well be wrong so i do publish things on the blog sometimes which i don't fully understand and i'm afraid this is one of them the next one much more closer to my comfort zone by rb bagios Maya King, Alex Martins and Rosie Pennington, who've got a new paper out on our old friend, localization. All right, and we've got a few posts coming up uh, in the next week or two on this one. Are we there yet? Very nice. I like the title, it was theirs, not mine. Uh, five key insights on localization as a journey towards locally led practice. And I'll, I'll give you the gist here. Localization and locally led practice are the latest buzzwords for something that the aid sector and the local communities and organizations who work with it has long tried to do. That is to ensure that local people and communities have the power and agency to drive their own development. In the past, the ownership agenda has tried to do this in different ways. Today, there are global and local movements too, including Shift the Power, the Movement for Community-Led Development, the Global Alliance for Communities and many others. But there has been real dissonance between rhetoric and action by external actors on localization and locally led practice. In the humanitarian sector, for example, only 3.8% of total available funding was transferred directly to local or national actors compared to the global target of 25%, which was set some years ago. And only 8% of leadership positions in national coordination structures are occupied by local or national actors. That is pretty terrible. Now, global upheavals due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Black Lives Matter protests, and the renewed debates on decolonizing development have provided renewed impetus for the sector to change. Meanwhile, the question of who counts as local in the first place remains contested. Depending on who is using the term, local in the global south can mean communities or community members, organizations operating at the local level, organizations operating at the national level, local governments, national governments, and more. Very nice. People tend to oversimplify the use of the word local. In a recent report for ODI, we highlight the existence of numerous positive examples of localization and locally led practice, while unpacking the barriers and power imbalances that have stalled progress overall. The report was based on a rapid review of the literature, consultations with over 100 participants, and analysis of 28 existing models and approaches. And they've got some mega complex diagrams to try and summarize all that. But here are the five key insights they've found. Power shapes not just the destination, but also the journey. Many in the aid sector agree on the what of localization, that is to shift the power to local actors in the global south. But there is less attention given to the how. 
we found that how localization is designed and implemented is a process that is also steeped in power. For instance, it's possible for localization efforts to be top-down and take little account of the views and values of the Global South. That is why many efforts to localize in the past have fallen short of their ambitions. In localization, the means matters just as much as the end. Two, localization doesn't only mean resources. It also includes agency and ways of being. Transferring resources is an important objective in itself, and we've done poorly thus far, but it's not enough. For localization to truly shift power, local actors should retain decision-making power in coming up with solutions to the problems they've identified. At the same time, genuine localization also requires respect for local actors' ways of being. We must not force local actors, especially indigenous or grassroots organizations, to look or operate like global north actors. If localization is to happen, it must be on their own terms. Absolutely, couldn't, couldn't agree more. More third, more data, evidence and research are needed to track progress towards locally led practice. Trying to understand why localization has had limited progress has been difficult because of this lack of data. For instance, we know that one barrier to localization is the perception of financial and other risks. But the evidence to support such perceptions is lacking. Good point. Fourth, there are already a lot of good models out there. We examined a selection of 28 existing models that were selected to illustrate aspects of our localization framework, including funding mechanisms, global networks, policy initiatives, and even measurement tools. We found that these efforts broadly focus on promoting locally led practice in four key ways. Movement building and collective advocacy, shifting quality funding to the global south, knowledge creation and sharing, and supporting proximate leaders who work closely with communities. Many of these initiatives seek to not only to transfer resources, but also to avoid encroachment on local actors' agency and to respect their ways of being. Instead of reinventing the wheel or starting yet another project, those who are sincere in advancing localization can instead learn from and accelerate these existing initiatives. Five, let Global South act, local actors lead. Localization will only truly shift power if local actors are leading it in the first place. Localization cannot be imposed. In this regard, Global North donors, intermediaries and NGOs need to have a difficult but necessary reflection on their future role. How can they be fit for purpose in the future when Global South actors are taking the lead? Which areas do they need to step back from and where do they need to accelerate change? Of course, Global South and local actors are diverse and are not a monolith. There are different perspectives and even power dynamics among them. But the point is that for any discourse, campaign or effort promoting localization to be effective, it must be led by the full diversity of Global South actors. Excellent stuff. I think the report uh, is probably going to become quite a standard reference um, and a nice bit of work there. So thanks to Arby, Maya, Alex and Rosie for that. And on that note, have a great weekend. The snow has stopped. The sun has come out. It may even get a bit warmer. That would be good. See you next week. Bye.